is uh, S. Kent Brown. He's emeritus professor of ancient scripture at BYU and uh, the former director of the BYU Jerusalem Center for Near Eastern Studies in the world of documentary films. Uh, <clears throat> Professor Brown was the executive producer for Journey of Faith, um, uh, Journey of Faith, The New World, and M Messiah Behold uh, the Lamb. <clears throat> His most recent book is The Testimony of Luke, and uh, he is currently working on a commentary on the Epistle of Ephesians uh, as a matter of personal interest in recent church uh, service and his wife, Gail, served in uh, Izmir, Turkey from 2015 to 2017. They're right uh, on the uh, trail of uh, the Apostle Paul. And he says that despite everything, he still rides up to 25 miles uh, uh, regularly. And uh, he and his wife, um, Gail, are the parents of five children the grandparents of 25 with two great-grandchildren. That's, that's uh, really very impressive indeed. On a personal note, I want to say I have been uh, acquainted uh, with uh, Kant for over half a century. I met him first of when his, I was a schoolboy in Berkeley, California, where my parents were living, and he was a student at uh, the University of California at Berkeley. Uh, he showed great interest in uh, my uh, studies and my academic ambitions and his interest in, in uh, my work and in me personal uh, has remained. Uh, we'll turn the time over to uh, uh, <coughs> Professor Brown for his presentation. After he's presented, uh, he will uh, uh, offer um, to answer any of the questions that you who are in attendance may have. Uh, you are welcome to uh, come and, uh, and uh, get the microphone in order to be able to uh, ask a question that he would be happy to answer. Uh, Professor Brown. I chose to work on Ephesians largely because we lived about an hour and a half from Ephesus in Izmir, so I got over to Ephesus quite a few times, at least a dozen. So, um, the title of my presentation is Jesus' First Visit to the Temple. Technically, it was not because he was taken there as an infant, but this seems to be the first time that he goes back after that. If he had gone on an earlier occasion, I expect that Luke would have noted that. Luke says that his parents came every year, uh, but he doesn't say anything about Jesus accompanying them until the incident narrated in Luke chapter 2. Um, <clears throat> I'm 
This presentation is not a work of historical fiction. To be sure, I've reconstructed a lot from the Mishnah in particular about celebrations of Passover in the city to try to get a sense of what Jesus experienced. Certainly it's not historical fiction in the sense of Robert Graves' book called King Jesus. He says that he did his best to be accurate about the historical setting, but there is a famous passage when he describes Zechariah going into the temple to light the incense, and instead of an angel appearing to Zechariah, King Herod does with the head of a donkey. So, so much for sort of historical reconstruction that is believable. Um, in addition to that, <clears throat> I'm, I'm sensing in my, in my head that the company that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus traveled with was large. Perhaps two or three hundred people. Otherwise, if it were smaller, like two or three dozen, his absence would have been noted almost immediately when his parents leave the city. But if there are two or three hundred, who knows where he is? And I very much suspect he is with playmates, other teenagers, and that they had spent a lot of time together during the almost ten days that they were in the city. <clears throat> so so he, they just assume he's with them. If you think that he was with the 40 and 50-year-olds, you're going to have to make a big case for me. He's, he's off with those other young people whom he's met when they first came down the Jordan Valley toward the city. Okay, those are, those are the key things I want to establish at the beginning. I suspect they left Jericho the morning that they walked up to the city. It's about a 16-mile walk, and by the time they reach the top of the Mount of Olives, they can turn and look behind them, looking west or east. They see the Jordan Valley lying there. Just off to the right here, they can see a little corner of the Dead Sea with the permanent mist hanging over it. <clears throat> they turn the other way, looking west, and of course they see the old city, they see the walls, not the old city walls, that's what you see today. They saw the walls of the city as they were then. But the thing that drew their eye, of course, was the temple. And the facade of that thing, with gold overlay, stood more than 100 feet in the air. So it was, it was an impressive sight. Down the Mount of Olives they go, and the first thing they look for is a mikvah bath. <clears throat> the rule was, according to the Mishnah, anybody who lived farther than Moda'in, which is 18 miles from Jerusalem to the west and north, Anyone who lived farther away than that was considered an outlander. 
someone who is touched by ritual impurity because they lived away from Judea. And so Jesus and his family, who live in Galilee, they have to bathe themselves before they enter the temple. And there were baths around, around the town or they could, go, they could go and rinse themselves off in a ritual way. If that first afternoon when they reached there, if they decide to go into the temple, they would go in one of the gates and there would stand a Levite with, with, a, with a branch, a sprig of palm, sprinkling people as they walked in. The water that he dips the palm branch in has in it the ashes of a red heifer, which was sacrificed over on the Mount of Olives before the festival began. And that also was believed to have cleansing powers so they could actually step into the temple grounds as, as they wished. <clears throat> All of this is new to Jesus. He's never seen any of this. <clears throat> so they go into the temple grounds, perhaps that first afternoon. Then they retreat to their camp place. We don't know where they stayed, but most pilgrims camped outside of the city. To rent a room inside the city was expensive, and we're never told that Joseph and Mary were flush with money. <clears throat> so we assume that like other people from the north with whom they traveled, they camped in a place that these people have been camping perhaps for years. <clears throat> so, first morning, before sunup, things begin to happen. Um, <clears throat> the opening of the temple gates is announced by two trumpets who play three short bursts on their horns. They're standing on the, um, uh, on the steps that go up into the sanctuary of the temple, so they're way inside the temple grounds. But they play those blasts, and the temple gates open, as well as the Nicanor Gate, which leads from the court of women up to the great altar. And inside the courtyard, which surrounds the sanctuary itself. So this is where you come in. You come in from the east through a gate into the court of women. You're surrounded by this large court. All Israelites can come here. Then beyond you to, to the west are a set of 15 steps that go up through a gate called the Nicanor Gate. Inside that gate is what's called the Court of the Israelites, which is a, which is a, a, a long enclosure, not very deep, that was, that was set off by a small wall, a cubit high. 
<clears throat> and as you, as you step through the corner gate, <clears throat> you see all kinds of things in front of you. I suspect that after Jesus went to the temple the first morning with his parents, saw this wondrous place for the first time, that the next morning he went with his friends. And the big prize for, for them was not this street or that building, it was the temple. And when they hustled through the court of women and go up to those 15 steps, the girls stop. The girls in this little group can't step through that. Only men can. And I suspect that it was at the top of those steps that Mary stood when she watched the priests sacrifice the two birds that she had bought for her cleansing when she was ritually cleansed after Jesus' birth. But the boys can go in. The girls can see a lot standing there, but the boys step into the court of Israelites. Right in front of them, just set a little bit to the left of the gate, was the great altar. According to one source, this thing was 15 feet taller than people standing inside this courtyard. And they could see the priests up there who were keeping the fires burning and putting on those fires the parts of the animals that were to be burned as part of the sacrifice. To their left, they could see the ramp, which goes down south. You come up the ramp going north, and that's where the priests brought the body parts to be burned. Right straight to their left on the south, they could see the doorway into what's called the Chamber of Hewn Stone. It was actually in two parts. In the outside part was where the Sanhedrin met, the deliberative body of Judaism, that which met in Jerusalem. On the inside part, closest to the sanctuary, closest to the courtyard, and the doorway these boys could see, was the place where the lots were drawn each morning for priests who would light the incense, who would assist the priest who lights the incense, who would take care of the morning sacrifice, who would take care of the evening sacrifice, and so on. And also priests were examined physically to see whether there was any, any blemish that, that would disqualify them from service. <clears throat> so boys can see that. They could not see the great bronze basin that was on the other side of the west side of the altar. But they could see the priests going over there to wash their hands and their feet to cleanse themselves as the day wore on because they, they of course, became quite bloody with sacrifices. <clears throat> then over to the right, north and west of where they stood, were 24 little, <clears throat> uh, little stations 
They're actually metal bars that are stuck into the flagstones where animals were tied up and slaughtered. Next to those were eight pillars with wooden tops and, and iron hooks where you hung the carcass of an animal for skinning, for cleaning out the entrails, all those kinds of things. And then there were, there were eight marble tables nearby, sitting over here, where people washed the parts of the, of the body of the animal before they were carried up onto the altar to be burned. So these boys see all of this. They may have been there early enough to see the priests walk up the steps, the 12 steps into the sanctuary, disappear in the dark, those who are going to take care of the lighting of the incense. And if they're there in the afternoon, about 3 o'clock, the whole thing would be repeated. Priest would bring a yearling ram, sacrifice it for the evening sacrifice, and the priest would go up into the sanctuary to light the incense for the second time during the day. So these boys must have been fascinated by all of this, as well as the girls who had come, and they could sort of see most of what I just described. The one thing they could not see was the drain at the southwest corner of the altar, where the excess blood, which was caught in basins from, from sacrifice of animals, was poured. This, the, the priests, of course, would sprinkle blood at corners of the altar below a red line. There was a red line that came all the way around the altar. And they'd sprinkle it on the altar near the base. And then the excess was taken to the southwest corner. And there was a drain that went all the way down into the Kidron Valley that carried the excess blood. Okay, so what have I forgotten? What's my time? About seven or eight minutes. Okay, so <clears throat> seven days after the initial cleansing in the baths, those who came from outside, by the way, John, Gospel of John, chapter 11, mentions this cleansing of people who came from far away. <clears throat> people went back to the mikvah bath and were rinsed the second time. Then comes the day just before Passover. Passover begins at night. The meal is always served after, after sundown. It's the only law about foods of its kind. Usually the midday meal, the main meal is eaten about 2 o'clock. <clears throat> so somebody had to go buy the lamb and slaughter it. If Jesus is the youngest group, uh, youngest person in their group of about 10, perhaps 15, who are going to celebrate Passover together, <clears throat> I think it's highly likely that he and Joseph were 
deputized by the others to go get the lamb. So they go buy a lamb either outside or inside the, the temple grounds. Then they take it to the court of the Israelites. But not everybody can do it at the same time. About 6,000 people, men, boys, would jam themselves into the court of the Israelites. And as the Levitical choir began to sing the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118, the first group of 6,000 men and boys went quickly, slaughtered their lambs, hung them up, skinned them, gave the parts to the priests that were to be taken care of, and the blood was caught in, in basins and was passed by two rows of priests, silver and gold basins, to be poured out next to the altar. <clears throat> so then they have to hustle, find one of the one of the ovens. The city set up ovens around the town where these lambs were roasted. They were put onto a pomegranate spit, not a metal spit, always pomegranate. Didn't touch anything else because it would render it unclean. And they would roast this thing, then hustle it over to what I, what I think must have been a rented facility. And they bring with roasted lamb the, the pelt, the skin which has been taken off it by, by Joseph and Jesus, because that goes to the landlord as his rent. That's what they give as their rent. So now the time comes for the service itself. <clears throat> On a low-lying table that everybody reclined around, <clears throat> um, were put platters of food, plus the three loaves of unleavened bread that were wrapped in a, in a piece of fabric. And everybody gets ready, and the host, whoever it is, starts this thing, people drink the first of four cups of wine, which after blessing starts the meal. And so they go. <clears throat> About as soon as that happens, then the women whisk the food away from the table. And then comes this little interaction that you've read about and know about, perhaps from your own experience, when the youngest child interacts with the host, why is this night different from other nights, asks the child. Might it have been Jesus? If he was the youngest person in the group, surely he is the one who's asking the question. Then the host recites, the wandering Aramean was my father, went down into Egypt, and so on. Language out of Deuteronomy 26. And, and so the thing began. After this little scene, the food comes back, the second cup of wine is drunk, and the meal begins. The host takes a piece of, a couple of pieces of the unleavened bread, 
puts the bitter herbs between it, dips it in what's called haruset, which is a dish made of crushed fruits and nuts with some vinegar in it. And he takes a bite of that. Then everybody take a bite of, takes a bite of that. This is probably what Judas received. It's called sop, but it's a little bit like a sandwich which has been dipped in the haruset. He receives it, leaves, and he never partakes of the lamb, which was the main emblem of Israel's deliverance. I think that's an important thing to note. So, people fall to, they eat the meal, they have to be done before midnight. That's a requirement. Everything on that table is supposed to render your hands unclean after midnight. So they fall to, there's a cup after the meal, the third cup. This seems to be the cup that Jesus blessed and turned into the sacramental ordinance. Paul writes, after he had supped. <clears throat> so it's the third cup. And then, then they sing. They sing the Hallel Psalms as had been sung over in the temple earlier that day. Nobody will hear them outside this room. But when the Levite choir sang the Hallel Psalms, everybody, as the lambs were being were being slaughtered, everybody in the city would have heard their voices, heard their choir. <clears throat> so, by the end of the story, of course, his parents leave, don't know that he's not with them. They get to the end of the first day's track, can't find him, so they come back. They, the expression after three days is a little ambiguous. It doesn't look like they looked for him for three days. One day travel, one day travel back. Third day they find him. What, what seems to have happened in all of this is that Jesus has set up shop just outside the chamber of hewn stone. There's a long, flat uh, place that runs along the south wall called the Hell. And that's where Sanhedrin members would come and answer questions for visitors. So it's already a place that's frequented by people who are curious to learn something. Here comes this bright 12-year-old and more or less takes over the conversation. <clears throat> Jesus did that a lot. Uh, and I suspect that's where he set up things. He had presented himself by this point as a teacher inside the temple grounds near the chamber of hewn stone where decisions for religious life were made. He had taken up a teaching post close to the sanctuary itself. It's just over the wall. He's on the outside of the wall that runs around the sanctuary but it's right there over the wall. In addition to that, 
it looks like the heart of the temple grounds have become his place where he is in effect taken over. So the temple now becomes his base of operations. It's not as though he was there bantering words with the doctors. No, he had other purposes in mind. <clears throat> so I've come to the end of what I want to say. There's a lot more because it turned out to be 26 pages. <clears throat> so any questions for about three minutes before I turn it over to my friend, Stephen Ricks? Ma'am. Please. I have no opinion about a drain in the floor of the Nau Temple. I mean, it's possible. It's also possible that it was there as a drain in case something broke, a pipe broke or something like that. Does anybody here know more about this topic? Sir? There was a drain uh, for the font. The baptismal yeah. font was down there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's recording. <clears throat> oh. Yeah, the drain, uh, there was a drain for the font. Um, I went there uh, when they first excavated it. I was yeah. at the University of Iowa and I did some work with, with the uh, Nauvoo architecture. And it's a four drain for the font. Okay. Thanks. Sir. So my question is this one? Or hmm? this one? Hmm? Okay. It's recording. So my questions are about where you left off. Uh, Jesus was found uh, teaching, uh, engaging with others. Um, how common would it have been for young people to do that at the time? And second, do we have any sense of what they might have been talking about? Um, uh, I, I doubt that young people were given very much of a voice except on special occasions like Passover when the youngest child asks the question to start the conversation. Um, the fact that he did shows his pluck, that he's now ready to start something. Uh, it's like somebody pushes or hits a celestial clock and it begins to tick. Um, whether, whether there's anything beyond that that I could say, um, I'm, I'm just not sure. So, but I, I, I sense that he puts a stamp on the moment, that he's been there with these people for a while. What topics they, they discussed, I think, is harder to, to estimate except that these people are really impressed with this young guy. He obviously 
has paid attention in synagogue service. He obviously has memorized large parts of the Hebrew Bible, um, and so on. So I, I expect that um, we're, we're uh, the, there are always the political problems of the city hanging over people, but I doubt that he dealt with things like whether it was lawful to pay taxes. That was an issue that was raised at the temple more than 20 years later, and he had an opportunity to answer it then. So, yeah. Sir, last question. Oh, sorry. Physical, yeah, physical, yeah. If, if I have a birthmark, I'm disqualified, for instance. Or if I've lost a finger in a farm accident, I'm disqualified. Yeah, it's physical, physical blemish. Yeah, sir. My question is a little bit... Here comes the microphone. Sure. Uh, Paul in Arabia, all you have to do is go south of Damascus and in ancient geography you're in Arabia. So he doesn't have to go very far to be in what's Arabia. In, in my opinion, um, Paul goes there to dust off revelation with the Lord and to learn more about what he should teach Gentiles. Uh, that's what he's been called to do. That's what Ananias set him apart to do. And uh, so I expect that's what he's done. How far south he went, I have no idea. The Jewish communities that are known historically are down in Yemen. Um, so that's a long way south. There, we know of Jewish communities that were there. Um, <clears throat> certainly, well, there, there's, there's an old tradition that at the time of Jeremiah, people fled Jerusalem in fairly large numbers and went into Arabia. The only one we know about is the party of Lehi and Sariah. Whether there are others who also went at that time, we don't know because we can't test the truthfulness of the tradition. But, but they, they, there is this 
sort of sense that people left the city knowing that it was in trouble spiritually and also that there were forces out there who would like to capture the town. But how far they went, if they went, and where they settled, if they settled, I don't know, except for the Jewish communities that show up in Yemen, most of whom have all come back, been brought back to Israel, modern Israel. So, okay. Stephen David Jordan.